Hi, welcome to the Sustainability Talk series brought to you by the Sustainability Collective Group at National Chengkyung University in Taiwan. We are a group of students, professors, and researchers from different disciplines who are passionate about sustainability and who want to use this online space to discuss, share, and learn about sustainability issues. Every month, we are hosting special guests from different countries and different backgrounds. We hope you enjoy our sessions, and let's get started with today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another listening session. So there we are talking in a deep depth look at participatory environmental planning and its impact on wetland conservation. And for this reason, we are very excited to present our guest for today's session, Adrian Dodd. Adrian is a PhD student in USA Berkeley in California. So we are very happy and lucky to have her. Hello, Adrian, and welcome to Sustainability Talk series. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. The other host is Fatima. Hey, Adrian, thanks for joining. From what you know, you have a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Studies at Southwestern University. And after that, you came over here to Taiwan for graduate school at National Chen Kong University. You got, and then you got a Master's of Science in the International Natural Disaster Mitigation and Management. So Natural Disaster Mitigation. Why did you choose this program? Why did you come to NCKU? Hi, Fatima. Hi, Laura. Thank you for this question and for inviting me. I love my time at NCKU, and I'm ecstatic about this podcast that you started, and I'm honored to be invited to be part of it. So as an environmental studies student in the liberal arts school that highlights interdisciplinary studies, it can be really depressing to learn about you know, climate change, all of this ecological destruction, wetland loss around the world, and ecological collapse on top of the reality of social injustice, marginalization around the world of people based on race, gender, class, sexual orientation. And so it was really overwhelming to learn about all of these horrible things happening in the world. Um, and so in my undergrad, I learned that conversations around sustainable development and climate adaptation that aren't centered around like social justice and people are incomplete and problematic. Um, and so, I wanted to make sure that my work is centered around marginalized people at the forefront and putting marginalized people first. And one of the biggest fears that I had looking at all of these issues was the reality that climate change is causing an increase in the severity and frequency of hazard events, you know, an increase of drought events or typhoons, hurricanes, wildfires, or in my home state of Texas, snowstorms. Um, and so marginalized people will be at the front of facing these disasters. And so that's when I decided that I want to focus on natural disaster mitigation and management. Um, and so I came to National Chungking University, and I was so excited to take a class with Professor Xiaowen Wang, um, in, who has a water sustainability lab at the university. Um, and her work with retired professors from UC Berkeley, Randy Hester and Marsha McNally, because their work is definitely focused just on that meeting of science-based flood management as well as people-centered um, participatory planning. Um, and so I came to the university because I wanted to get 
perspective about natural disaster mitigation management outside of the United States. Um, and I really liked the program in CKU because I got to delve into natural disaster mitigation and management, both from the science point of view, um, as well as the person point of view, the people point of view. I see. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Your master research was focused on participatory environmental planning for wetlands. Why is used? Can you tell us more about it? What is what is participatory environmental planning, and why is it so important for sustainability and disaster management? Yeah. So my master's research um, at National Chungking University was done in a rural part of Jiayi County, located in the southwest coast of Taiwan, north of the National Chungking University campus. And the region is Lailoing, has a history of flooding, as well as a serious problem of land subsidence, um, where the land is actually sinking faster than sea level is rising. Um, and so in my research, I was very lucky to be able to join the Water Sustainability Lab um, run by Professor Xiaowen Wang, um, where she had done a historic research in the area about how does water flow? Um, how do we work these water gates in this region to reduce flooding? Um, and she'd already been looking at ecological um, response. You know, what is the response by the ecosystem when we change water dips um, and when we try to manage for flooding and communicate with the local people? So I was entering into a lab that was already focused on kind of this intersection of local people's needs, flood management needs, as well as the ecological needs of the wetland and the birds and the species using the wetland. Um, so my research um, looked at some abandoned salt pans that were being considered for inclusion in the national wetland. And so the national important wetlands in Taiwan and the international important wetlands in Taiwan, they all require having a management plan, conservation and utilization plan. And so my master's research was about creating a wise use plan for these salt pans if they were included in the um, designated wetland so that they could have a plan. And so I wanted to make sure that the official rules regulating these salt pans were informed by the local people, the local communities need for flood mitigation, as well as their other needs, um, whether it be water cycling or harvesting seagrass. And so a big problem is, you know, if outsiders come in and just make these top-down decisions about managing the wetland, Maybe they don't understand how local people use that wetland and they might ban or make it illegal all of a sudden for people who've been using this wetland for a long time for seagrass production, um, it, you know, ban them from using it. And so what we wanted to figure out was how can we have a balance between the communities in this area having a relationship with this wetland and able to use the ecosystem services the wetland provides while also ensuring that there is sustainable ecological growth and life within the wetland is not overused. And at the same time, making sure that um, flood management is cohesive. Because if the government has one plan for the, how the water gates should be managed, how the water level should be managed, but the local people who are wanting to do fishing or seagrass harvesting have a different plan for what, how water management should be done, then we might see a, a conflict and a problem. And so I wanted to make sure that the official wise use plans for these wetlands 
was understood by both the hydraulic engineers, the local people, um, the birders in the region, the environmental activists, everyone could come together and create a solid plan for this wetland. We can have a smart use of it where everyone can be on board and um, participating in the life and the long-term management of the wetland. And so that's what my research is about. And you asked what is participatory environmental planning and why it's important in discussions of sustainability. Um, so for me, participatory planning is a method. Um, and there's a lot of different methods out there to use. I was inspired by the work of Randy Hester and Marsha McNally. Um, and Randy wrote a book, um, Design for Ecological Democracy, which is really inspiring. And Randy and Marsha often use in their, in their in planning work, this 12-step method, and it highlights listening. And so for me, the participatory planning method is about learning more than one narrative about a place. If you have a job as a hydraulic engineer, or if you have a job as, I don't know, an architect, or whatever your job is in a location, it's important to learn about that place and have more than one story about what that place is. You know, different people from different backgrounds are going to have very different experiences in a location. And so I think it's important to learn those things. For instance, if you're a hydraulic engineer, you might only see, okay, the water gates, here are the water gates, the elevation of the water has a certain um, standard that we have to meet. Um, but then if the, the hydraulic engineer goes and talks to a local birder, all of a sudden you are able to expand what you see and you're able to see, okay, this specific water range allows the water level in the wetland to create this perfect mix of wetland grass, mudflat, and mangrove habitat for birds. So maybe the standard that we've created can be made better, right? But when we try and meet these ecological needs, and then if you talk to maybe a local person who harvests seagrass, you might learn that, okay, well, we actually need some water flow, water movement in here so the seagrass can stay healthy and alive. And so the local people's use of the wetland in long-term harvesting of seagrass actually can help inform us of what a healthy wetland water management plan might look like. And so it's really about opening your eyes. And um, I think one of the challenges of participatory planning is that a lot of times if you hold community meetings, the people who are busy, like single moms or people working all day, they're not necessarily able to come or maybe um, some people in the community don't speak the language that most other people in the community speak. And so a big problem with, with participatory planning is reaching out and realizing, one, who in the community has not been able to communicate with us or talk to us, two, why have they not been able to, um, and then how can we try and get their voice into the conversation? Um, you know, because you can't just demand that the community members take time out of their day to come and talk to you, right? It's your job to go to, the, go to them where they are able to talk to you and figure out what needs they might have. So then, uh, for example, in your thesis work, like were there any specific strategies you had to try so you could include as most people as possible? Yes, yeah, so we did hold community meetings in um, three of the different villages around this wetland. But like I said, not everyone is able to participate. So we also went door to door and we just roamed. Oh, wow. <laughs> we sent researchers and we roamed and we ended up getting 200 um, uh, interviews and surveys done, um, as well as a number of 
multiple community meetings. So part of the process, besides com general community meetings, we also had like brainstorming sessions. And so the brainstorming sessions were a lot more in depth. But in order, you know, not everyone can participate in a lengthy brainstorming session where you sit down with pen and paper on a map and discuss. Um, yeah. So in order to get more people's perspective, before we did that, we kind of walked around the village and we had um, cards, visuals, we had maps, we had paper, because different people communicate and think about landscape and space in different ways. Some people don't like to use maps, some people like to use images. So um, in addition to trying to talk to people, we also wanted to make sure that we had a diverse way to communicate to people whether it be through cards and images or through maps or through giving them a pen and paper or just having them tell us a story about their home, about their place, about the region. Um, that's kind of what we, what we did. So in your study, who, who are the, the most, uh, the key stakeholders that you have to, to deal to, not to deal with, but to communicate with during the right. project? Yeah, so we needed to understand like local politics and um, also what's going on in the community. So, you know, in the rural um, areas, we every um, community has an elected village leader. And so they're very important to make contact with and talk to and make sure that um, they know who we are and have a good relationship with them. But then also we have people who go and harvest, um, for instance, fish or sea grasses from the wetland. Then we have people who go and operate the water gates, um, maybe unofficially. <laughs> um, we have fish farmers. So the region surrounding the wetland also, there's a, a lot of fish ponds. The landscape is beautiful. It's fish ponds, villages, and then these big open salt pans that have now become wetlands. And so we had fish pond, um, fish farmers. We had local residents and business people. We had the village leader. We also have to deal with government um, agencies and government workers and make sure that our relationship with, for instance, the water resource agency is good um, and local NGOs and local birders, um, that our relationship with them is also good. But another big stakeholder is the central government's construction and planning agency because the central government's construction and planning agency is actually um, the government agency in charge of the, um, the government, Taiwan's wetland management. So the utilization and conservation plan of wetlands in Taiwan is overseen by the uh, CPA. And so they're a big stakeholder to talk to. You mentioned the birders, birders here. Is it like just people that enjoy watching birds? Or, yeah. Or, it, from a basic point of view, it's just people who like watching birds. But we were really lucky that in Jai County, there's actually really expert birders. So I, I'm sure in, within the birding community, there's different levels of expertise, but the birders that we were talking to were very organized and um, had made, like, wrote down data. We had, we got a lot of data and graphs from the local birders who spend a lot of their time in these wetlands. So they were able to tell us the kind of birds they use the area, what time of day, what time of year, very detailed information about bird life um, in the wetland, just talking to um, local people. And so that's a really great example of citizen science. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily using the citizen science apps like eBird, but just being able to talk to them um, gave us a lot of data and information. 
there any protected species in, in this area of Jai? Yes, there are a few endangered species um, and endangered bird species in this area. Um, probably the best well-known one is the black-faced spoonbill. And in the salt pans that I was working in, um, we had over 8% of the total world population of the black-faced spoonbill wintering in this um, wetland. So that's vital, you know, it's very important. Maybe to, before we finish going back to participatory planning, I wanted to ask one more, at least for the, for in here in the, in the topic of wetlands, what would you think would be the most important part of it? Like, because we're, we're talking about participatory planning, environmental planning, how would you be able to use this properly? Right, so kind of taking a step back into like the theme of sustainability in general. I mean, you know, if we're working within the field of sustainability um, planning or sustainable development, um, you know, we're trying to create a better future. Um, and so, you know, I'm coming from the perspective of flood management and um, participatory planning, wanting to make sure that different people have agency um, in their work. Different people have agency in their lives and their communities. Um, so I think that's a, a major aspect of um, sustainable development and that I think that participatory environmental planning methods can help decision makers and planners learn to listen to often marginalized people and include them. Um, so You know, I think that the inclusion of marginalized people in decision-making is a key part of creating a sustainable and just future. And, and I think that participatory methods are key to reaching that goal. It does sound like it is the only way for everyone to be happy or as, as happy as possible, at least. Well, thank you, Adrian. It's been great talking to you about participatory planning. But I'm out of questions. So for now, let's switch and see if any of our listeners want to join in on the discussion. So John is asking, what are ecosystem services? And could you give us some examples of what kind of ecosystem services of wetland provide, a wetland provides? Yes, thank you, John. So ecosystem services are benefits that a wetland or an ecosystem, whether it's a forest, a wetland, a river, a lake, provide. Um, and so that includes flood mitigation, right? So wetlands can help us mitigate flooding. Um, it also includes food production, water, cleaning of the water, um, water cycling, as well as carbon sequestration. So ecosystem services are all of the things that different ecosystems provide. And so of course, We can't survive without water. We can't survive without food. And the ecosystems and the natural lands provide those things to us. And so ecosystem services is the academic way of talking about what those things are and trying to identify them. Regarding ecosystem services, John has another question. So what, what is seagrass harvested for? And what is the economic value of it? Great question. So the seagrass is actually harvested to eat, so you can eat it and um, sell it. And I'm not sure what the economic value is. It's a really great question. Did you ever try it while you were on, on uh, in Jai seagrass? <laughs> I did not try it. 
Oh, well, you have to I come back I'll to try it. Yeah, you have to come back and try it sometime. Yeah, I need to come back and to try it. How about your your survey? What was your sample size? Yeah. So the surveys? Yeah. So we did. Yeah, so we connected with 200 interviews. Um, and I don't have the data with me right now about how many people were in the community. I'm trying to look it up. Trying to find it, but I can't find it right now. But yeah, so we did 200 interviews in the community. Well, in the meantime, Romel has a question. In the survey of the local population, were there any practices by the locality that you found to be in conflict with sustainable management of the area? Yeah, so one um, issue that we found in the salt pans was dumping of trash into the salt pan. So people dumping like the trash from their houses? Yeah. Mm. And so there's like this idea maybe with some people that these abandoned salt pans, you know, the salt pans used to be used um, to harvest salt. So the salt pans were actually the big economic driver of these communities um, before they shut down. And so now it's kind of this government owned land that's just sitting there. Um, and they became, over time, these really amazing wetland habitats. Um, and so some people are not, you know, some people who've lived there for a long time, they see it as just, oh, that used to be a job provider, uh, and now they've been abandoned. And so the use of these land is really um, contested, and it's, a, it's important for the people in this community also just about their history and about their culture of, you know, we, we were salt farmers, and this land was really important to us. Um, but now it's kind of abandoned, and so it's seen as like, oh yeah, sure. Some people might think, oh sure, I can just dump the trash here. It's abandoned the land, and it's not being used for anything. Um, so yeah. some people in the community might really want to protect these lands, and um, they enjoy having such a beautiful place where endangered species come and live. And some people are, you know, we don't um, value that as much, hmm. or don't think that putting some trash there is going to really impact the wetland in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also had another question. You mentioned the paper, like the, the 12 steps, when we were talking about participatory planning. Is this like a set of recommendations or a guideline? Or what, what is it exactly? Yeah, so it's kind of a guideline. Um, and it's the system that, um, the environmental planners, Randy Hester and Marshall McNally, um, often use in their work. And so, um, for instance, like the first step is listen, um, right? And the second step is set goals and then take inventory and map, introduce community to itself. So it's about getting to know the community, but then also bringing the community information about the location where they live that may not have access to. For instance, um, you know, you can learn a lot from talking to the community, but also when you're connected to really powerful um, GIS or geographic information systems, you're, you have a lot of access to data, um, whether it be long-term um, data about land subsidence or um, flooding or other information about the area. You can also provide that to the local community. And um, 
and when and and invite the local community to also ask questions about you know what's going on in their area that they might not be aware of because sometimes you live in a yeah. place so long um, you stop um, asking questions or thinking critically about it um, and so you gain all of this knowledge about a location and so it can be really helpful to kind of come in and have this bridge between local knowledge and um, other scientific data to kind of come together and have a discussion so that's kind of part of the 12-step process but then another aspect of it is like you know get a feeling for the place and get a big idea and set goals with the community um and um you know when you have a plan make multiple different versions and scenarios and evaluate alternatives that might work and talk to the community about what are the different things that we care about um, and then, of course, the end of these 12-step process is 11, is transfer ideas into plans, but also to transfer responsibility, right? Because maybe as a researcher, as a planner, you're not going to be living in this community long-term. So how do you transfer responsibility of long-term management to people who can actually continue doing the work? Um, and then after your plan has been implemented, if it is implemented, and there needs to be evaluation afterwards and critical evaluation so that adaptation can happen if necessary. And that's the last step of the process. So it's kind of this process of starting from listening and ending in listening again. So evaluating the plan after it's been implemented is sort of like coming back and listening again and looking at the results again critically. I see. Thank you. Uh John yes. also asks, how do typhoons affect wetlands? And yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so typhoons, like in Taiwan, typhoons can bring flooding, but um, typhoons can also bring a lot of sediment into the wetlands. And that's not, necessarily, that's not a bad thing. So sediment can be um, really great in helping to move nutrients from upstream down into the wetlands. And and so from a natural system, typhoons can help to bring both water resources into the area as well as a lot of sediment. Um, but typhoons can also flood wetlands and um, lead to the death of, um, like, for instance, if we have birds who have their eggs yeah. in the wetland and all of a sudden there's a big flood that comes, their eggs will be destroyed. You know, and that's small scale. So we have these small scale impacts and we also have these long term, larger scale impacts where... You know, typhoons aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's a natural process. Um, but it, they, it can also have disastrous effects on communities who live in the region. Yeah, and due to global warming, it's more frequent than before, right? And it's hard to keep a balance, <laughs> a natural right. balance. And almost scarier is like, is we also might in the especially if you live in a place, you kind of learn what season are you expected to have large floods. And I think one of the scary things with climate change is that it disrupts that process where usually flooding happens at this time of year, but all of a sudden with climate change, we're seeing flooding at different times of the year. Um, and so then that really is problematic when we are a community trying to prepare for this um, possible disaster. And we've learned to live with it over the years, but now it's not following the same patterns that it used to. And so that can also be really scary, not knowing, you know, when it's going to happen anymore. You did right. mention the, that raining can help with 
with the state of the wetland. So John has a question related to that. Is there a method to assess the health of a wetland? Yeah, so there's different methods to assess um, health of wetlands. And, um, you know, some it's about diversity. And so it's, there's different ways to kind of look at it. And, and the, so that's kind of a, an important aspect of, you know, what is it that we care about? Or what is it that we see as a wetland? Is it the mudflat that we care about, the mangroves we care about, the grasses that we care about, or is it the deeper at parts of the wetland that have seagrass or fish? You know, when we're looking at health of wetland, are we caring most about biodiversity or are we caring most about this one endangered species? And so when we're trying to restore a wetland, are we trying to restore it just for this one species and its needs or are we looking at diversity? But then what scale are we thinking about diversity? So that's a complicated question that I don't think I can answer fully right now, but you know, that is an important um, discussion to have. Um, yeah. There's another question by Manuel Carrera. Which one of the 12 steps is the most important to ensuring a success, to ensure a successful project? Wow, great question. In and your well, opinion, in your opinion. <laughs> okay, well, I might even think about this. a hard question, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I mean, everything is important, right? That's why there's right. steps. <laughs> you cannot just <laughs> jump to step three without going to step two first, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, well, and so the question is about success of a project. Yeah. I think maybe in terms of long-term success of a project, one of the most important things is being able to transfer responsibility. So. And that also kind of includes listening within it. Um, I, my first response is to say listening is the most important step, but it's so it's so vital that it's almost like you don't need to mention it. Like so, listening of course is like necessary for all the steps. You can't do any of the steps without listening. Um, but I think maybe for success of a project, one of the hardest things is being able to transfer responsibility. Right. So if you've done this planning. Who is it in the community that actually will be doing the management um, and taking responsibility to do this? And so, you know, a big part of why wise use, wetland wise use is really important and cool is that instead of trying to kick local communities out of wetlands because local communities shouldn't be messing with this natural environment and this endangered species habitat, instead of having that, you know, kind of attitude towards it, it's trying to allow planners and conservationists to have an attitude of you know, local communities can help with the conservation and long-term sustainable management of the wetland. For instance, if your local communities are invested in the health of the seagrass or invested in health of the fish species that live within the wetland, that means that they're also invested in the health of the wetland. And so they're going to be more willing and have an economic incentive to help with Watergate management, make sure that the water flow within the wetland is, is at a healthy level and the water level is at a good level. Um, and so when you have wise use of wetlands, then we're able to then find people to kind of take responsibility and want to have this responsibility because it does help them. And so we have this like co-benefit um, and this good relationship between community and wetlands. So I think that aspect of transferring responsibility is really hard, especially in the study area where I was, where there's not a national park or an actual official managing uh, agency 
to manage the wetland. Um, for instance, another wetland, Chigu Saltpino wetland, or um, Sitzhau wetland. Sitzhau wetland has Taijiang National Park to help manage and control it. And so, you know, Budai wetland, where I was working, does not have this large agency dedicated to conservation that will manage it. So how do we do this transfer responsibility within this context? Is there like a difference between the management of wetlands and the United States? Good question. So probably similar where you have some wetlands that aren't really recognized as wetlands or you have some areas where um, you don't have a managing agency. You know, some areas will have a large managing agency to help maintain and protect um, and manage tourism. And similar to Taiwan, you have some wetlands that are protected and managed in this way and some um, that don't have that. Uh, but, you know, Taiwan's not part of the Ramsar Convention. Um, um, and the Ramsar Convention the wetlands is like this international um, group that helps to kind of um, connect all of these different important wetlands around the world. And so Taiwan's not a part of that, but of course the United States is. Um, mm. But Taiwan's government has followed and used the Ramsar conventions um, like methods in policy. So like the construction and planning agencies, uh, management of the utilization and conservation plan of wetlands, that conservation utilization plan does follow like Ramsar um, Ramsar conventions, which is interesting. So I think Taiwan would definitely uh, want to join the Ramsar Convention if if allowed to. But it's currently being blocked from entry. Is there like any books you recommend to read about any of these topics? Yeah, so I think Randy. Randolph Hester, Professor Randolph Hester's book, um, Design for Ecological Democracy, is a really interesting and good starting point to, to look at. Um, but again, participatory planning, there's a lot of different methods to use. And this is the method that I used. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about mm. it. And now there's a lot of discussion about the problemat problems with it and how is participatory planning problematic or even elitist that, you know, who has time to participate and who has time to have their voice heard? It's people in the community that maybe um, are, don't have to be working all day or aren't having to take care of kids at home or can speak the language that's most commonly spoken. And so, um, you know, there are things that we need to kind of question about our methods and, you know, how is it that we can make it more just? Um, because if it's the, the loudest person getting their voice heard, um, you know, the loudest person isn't necessarily um, the only person there. But a lot of times people who are quiet are not able to be heard won't be heard. So that's kind of some of the discussions happening now around participatory planning and some of the problems with it. Thank you, Adrian. Uh, thank you. There are any other yes, questions before we finish? Wait a bit to see if someone asks something else. So is this like a recent topic? So, so yeah. Randy and Marsha, you know, Randy published a paper about the 12-step process in um, the 80s, 1980s. So okay. um, it's not that recent, but um, 
it hasn't, you know, we're, we're still trying to, a topic being written about and used in certain settings does not mean it has permeated a culture or per- permeated a management um, system. So like in, even though these ideas have been around for a long time, the actual implementation of the ideas, um, we still have a long, a long way to go and actually having these things be done. And it's kind of a continuous thing too. Like maybe there has been really big success in participatory planning in the past. And then after 20 years, it kind of gets forgotten or dies out um, or it's not trendy anymore. And we start losing, losing it. But because it's, it has been around for a while, that is why also we're able to have deeper conversations around it about, okay, what are the problems with it and how can we make it more just and include more people? Um, and it's not always about how many people did you interview? Like you need more people to interview, but about the diversity of how many did you get to talk to all of the different marginalized community people in the community who maybe their voice is not heard as often and knowing that you know just because there's one person with a certain opinion or there's an experience doesn't mean that person doesn't matter or their experience doesn't matter yeah everyone be taken into consideration right yeah thank you adrian thank you thanks adrian it's been great talking to you about participatory planning and your and your work and all you've done here in Taiwan, in Sika Youth, especially, just like us. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, for, for now, this is the time we have. So I, once again, I would like to help you for taking the time to chat with us this evening. I hope you had a good time. And morning. Also, uh, yeah, and morning for you, because you're in Texas, yeah. right? What it right yes, now? I'm in Texas right now. What, what time is it? 7 a.m., 7.40 now. <laughs> Well, Not too early. <laughs> even more thankful now. And of course, also <laughs> thankful to all, the, all of the listeners that were here with us, asking questions and just participating in the podcast. So yeah, thank uh, you. follow our Instagram or Facebook or just stay in this Discord channel so you can be updated for the next sessions. So thanks a lot and see you next time. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you, Adrian. Bye. Enjoy your day, Adrian. Yes. And enjoy your night, everyone in Taiwan.